Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Brian Day. Um, so that, that, I hope that helps you. We want you to know uh, the difference they're making. So we'll play those each week. And I was sitting there, I was watching that. You know, Dre and Lee have really been a blessing and impact to this church. And they weren't even on the budget in the beginning of the year. That was a leap of faith that we wanted them to move their whole family down from Wisconsin, uh, which they did and now are with us. All right. Um, So we're jumping into a new teaching series. And I want to do something with you today we don't always do. Um, If we can get the tech going here, I think we will. Um, Where's Dave Jezik? We always need his help. Um, But we're going into a series about the table. Can we start over? Let me do my entrance again. Go up, come back in. We're fine. That was really impressive, dude. If I did that, I'd hurt something. It's still a black screen, though. We want you to run back one more time. Here he comes. I believe in God the Father. All right. I know you do. But we're having fun with this sucker. Here, just, I'll, I'll just keep talking. Um, so we're looking at the table, and what I want us to do and while we're getting this on is um, today on All Saints Day, uh, we hear uh, Psalm 23 often at funerals. Um, but I don't know if you know, Psalm 23 was never written to be a psalm of death. It was written to be a psalm of life, okay? And Psalm 23 is revered by three of the world's major faith communities, Jewish community, Christian community, and the Islamic community hold Psalm 23 um, sacred text to their faith. So this is usually, I'll come up here and I'll read scripture, but I thought today, this is one when I was growing up, we had to recite these things. It wouldn't be bad for us to do it together, so we're going to throw it up on a big screen. If you, would, if you don't want to, that's fine, just kind of take it in. But if we could fill this, this area with the sounds of this psalm, I think that would be healing for all of us on this day. So let's just say it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Thanks be to God. So, we're starting a new teaching series today, and you know it's about our teaching series. We always have a kind of a title for it to grab your attention. And then we have a tagline, and the tagline is always a scripture, um, and it's a scripture that kind of becomes the foundation for the series. And our foundational scripture for this month's series, during the time of November, as we're thinking about tables, right, um, comes from this psalm where it says, 
he prepares a table before me. Actually, in the Hebrew, you could really read that he prepares a table for me, right? In my father's house are many rooms, right? If it were not so, what I've said, I go ahead to prepare a place for you. Now, I don't know about you. We have a lot of family traditions as we come around the holidays. Uh, my mom um, was born on Christmas Day, so she was the ghost of Christmas present on steroids. I mean, Thanksgiving and Christmas in the Freed household were events. They were. Um, you need to go home and sleep for two days after the holidays. After my mom passed away in 2004 and went home to God, my sister and I have kept these traditions alive. So she takes Thanksgiving, and I've always taken Christmas, which seemed like a good idea at the time. But I hadn't thought how much our church would grow, and now on Christmas Eve, I'd be preaching five Christmas Eve messages and then cooking for 22 people the next day. But I've hung in there with it. Um, and what we do is in keeping the tradition alive, you know, we always have little name plates on the plates, you know, little name tags. Everybody knows where they sit. That's always fun to decide who sits by who and where we're going to be. And you come into Thanksgiving, you come into Christmas, and you find your name tag, and that's your place. God's saying, do you know when you get home to the great feast with God, all you're going to be doing is looking for your place setting at the table. That there's a place setting with your name on it. In fact, Revelation 2 says God even has a pet name for you that you're not going to know until you get there. He's written it, he says, on a little white stone. And one day it'll be revealed. I don't know about you, that's very, very comforting for me that we have a God that sits that high but loves us that intimately to tell us there's a place for you at the table. And so we're talking about tables. And Leonard Sweet is a theologian I've gotten to know pretty well over my ministry. In fact, in 2016, he and I keynoted a uh, big conference for like 1,500 folks out in Chicago. We were the two keynote speakers, and we hadn't seen each other in a while, and we were catching up in the back room, in the green room, you know, with the speakers and sharing each other's notes, what we were going to talk about, so there'd be continuity between the morning and the afternoon. And uh, after we, we just fellowshiped a bit, he handed me something. He said, Chip, this is my newest book. And, and it was a book he'd written. There. He writes a book like every six months. I don't know. I wish I had that time. But um, he handed me this. And it, I'll never forget, he gave it to me. And it was called From Tablet to Table. And so I did tweet him, okay? So I'm giving him appropriate notice. I just hijacked that. And that's going to be the title for our November series, From Tablet to Table. Because back in the summer, something got to me. And even though I'd gotten that book back in 16, I'd casually read it, I went back and I felt like I needed to read it again because suddenly I had this hunger to get back to the table. Things were happening. It was probably the craziness in our country and the name-calling and, the, and you, know, uh, uh, you know, the divided natures and, and all this finger-pointing and carrying on. And my God, the loss of civility is maddening. And I just felt like I want to get back to the table. I want to get back where... Things are pure, and we're, we're getting, they're not always pure, we know. We're getting back to that season where we'll be sitting at table with folks, some people we only see once a year, some people we wish we didn't have to see once a year. Like, we, we got all of them, right? But we conduct ourselves a certain way at the table. And so I went back to this image of being at the table, and some other things were kind of hitting me up as I was thinking about this from tablet to table, and uh, as thinking in the summer about this series, I read a couple articles, and, and the Holy Spirit always agitates preachers, shows us little things. And actually, I was online, I was looking at the Washington Post one day, and an article, I always look at the titles, and some articles catch your mind, right, or catch your eye. Um, and Pastor Terry had actually read the same thing. We laughed when we came into the office that day. 
The title that got my attention is the Washington Post said, Young Adults Are Growing Horns. See, if you're a theologian, that gets your attention. You know, you never know when the Antichrist is coming. So uh, you just kind of keep out on the horizon. And, and uh, young people are growing horns. And what was, as I read it, it was an article. There's a major uh, academic study happening in Australia. This was just from the summer initiate. They're no- noticing a change in human physiology, studying human anatomy. Here's what they wrote. They said, we've discovered new research in biomechanics that suggests that young people are developing horn-like spikes at the back of their skulls, bone spurs caused by the forward tilt of the head, which shifts weight from the spine to the muscles at the back of the head, causing bone growth in the connecting tendons and ligaments. The weight transfer that causes the buildup can be compared to the way the skin thickens into a callus as a response to pressure or abrasion. The cause, they have hypothesized, is prolonged use of smartphones and other handheld devices which require users to bend their heads forward to make sense of what's happening on the miniature screens. Now, before we just fire bullets at the young adults, that convicted me, and I'm 57. And I was wondering why my neck's hurt. Right? Tablets. And then I thought about tables. A story a friend of mine, another pastor, told me just recently that um, his daughter had come home from school after midterms, and she brought a friend of hers from college back home. And, uh, you know, when, when college students come back home from college, they want two things. One, they want their laundry done. Hello? Anybody been there? Okay. Two college parents feel it with me. The rest of you, wait your time. It's coming. Um, and they want a home-cooked meal, right? Home-cooked meal. So he said, we, cooked the, we did the works. We cooked the meal for my daughter and her friend. Her friend was very vivacious. When we sat at the meal that night, she kind of got real quiet and... She was visibly um, kind of uncomfortable. And he said the next morning, he asked his daughter about that. He said, what, what happened with her? And she seemed like we were trying to be good hosts. And, and she said, Dad, yeah, I noticed it too. And I talked to her up in the room. And she had never sat at a table to have a meal with a family. And she said, I asked her about that. And she said, yeah, my family, we growing up, we, we really didn't eat together. And if we ever did eat together, we always did it in front of the TV. So we have tablets that are reshaping human anatomy. And we have generations of people who have never been to the table. From tablet to table. And so I want to look at the table. And as I was thinking about that and I was reading uh, Leonard's book, um, I I, I don't know why it's something you should have known before, but it it ignited for me in different ways. Do we realize how much of Jesus' life he spent at tables? Like, like, read the Gospels. You hardly ever encounter Jesus that he doesn't have food in his hands. Our millennials' friends would say he was a foodie. But he was. He's always a table. His first miracle was where? At a wedding feast, right? Where he turned the water into the wine. Or my Southern Baptist friend said into grape juice. Not true, but it sounds good. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was in this celebratory with people. And, you know, sure, he preached the Sermon on the Mount and, and, you know, wonderful teaching. And what happened after that? Everybody converted. No, most people read John, said this teaching's too hard, and they went home. But at table, what happened to Zacchaeus, the tax collector? His life was changed. 
He said, God, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to give back four times over and give half of my money to the poor. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Where did it happen? It happened at a table. And Jesus, uh, in fact, that's what drove the religious leaders insane. Because he wasn't sitting on dioceses at the committee of the higher achieving gobbledygooping of Cuyahoga County. Right? He wasn't sitting at VIP tables. He wasn't in green rooms like me and Dr. Sweet. He was out with folk, hurting folk, folks that couldn't even get in the church, tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And the, and the religious leaders went insane because of who he ate with. And that's when they decided he had to die. In fact, one scholar I know said Jesus was killed and hung on a cross because he ate good food with bad people. And he was out with Levi. Remember, he calls Levi the tax collector. And, and Levi comes to Jesus, sits at table. His life has changed. And his life was changed so much that Levi goes home. Read it. I may preach on it next week. He goes home and he throws a party for every tax collector in Jerusalem. And he invites them all over and he says, hey, Jesus, come on. Do I got a surprise for them? Come on over to the house. I imagine Jesus getting there and looking at this community of, of Ponzi scam artists. And saying, Levi, I love your heart. Now, the religious people went insane when he sat at table with one tax collector, Zacchaeus. How do you think they reacted when he was at a whole party with them all? Is it any wonder that they said to him, you are a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners? And what did Jesus say? Thank you. He took it as a compliment. Because he did his main work at tables. Do you ever notice that transformation happens at tables? Life change happens at tables. We don't just sit in tables to eat the food. We sit at tables to build relationships. Why is it that every first date that's ever happened in the world involves a meal? Because we develop relationships. We, we come to the table and I got to thinking about that. We're losing the table in our society. We're losing it in the church, right? I love the big meetings. I love these incredible leaders that I get to worship with. I love, uh, you know, the outreach and the missions that we do. But are we sitting at table? Are we getting to hear each other's stories? Are we doing it in our homes? Are we doing it along the way? You know, and I got to thinking about this and we're remembering saints, but I started thinking about our kids. I love, you know one of the things I love at Garfield Memorial Church at both of our Cleveland campuses? Our nurseries and toddler rooms are full. Like they're full. I was at, I was at a, you know, the meetup uh, that we had not recently, a bunch of young adults there, and I'm like, oh gosh, I didn't know you guys were expecting. They're like, Chip, it's Garfield. Like, like what, everybody's expecting, I guess. I don't know. But you know, we're full. And I got to thinking, when I got here 15 years ago, um, they had a nursery. We had a nursery worker. She wasn't paid. She was the wife of one staff person. And I noticed for like my first five weeks, I was walking by and the nursery was dark and there was no staff person there. And so I said to somebody, hey, our business manager at the time, well, you know, this person's supposed to be our nursery worker and never there. And she said, well, she keeps her cell phone on her and they call her whenever there's kids, but we usually only have a kid about once every three months. We moved into our South Euclid campus. They didn't have a nursery. And now we got nurseries full of kids and toddlers. And I go out there, if you want to, it's kind of fun. You can peek in the little portholes at the mission control because they're one-way mirrors for all the helicopter parents in our congregation. <laughs> so sometimes I just go be a helicopter pastor and I look in. And, and it's so great. And you know what the Holy Spirit convicted me on the other day? 
We are raising 22nd century kids. That's who's over there. These are kids of the next century. There's, there's, 80, you know, there's something like an 80% chance that you know, uh, females born between 1990 and 2000, children in our country have like a 69% chance, 70% chance living into the 22nd century. Our nurseries are going to live into the 22nd century. And how are we transmitting the faith? Because let me tell you what's a problem in the American church. We have a reproduction problem. Do you realize right now, if studies are right, what percentage of children that we've been commissioned to, and this involves you two parents, you get them a lot longer than we do. Like if you're a super attending church person, we get a crack at your kids like 40 hours a year. Right? We need to do this thing together. And we're, 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 we got children that the scholars say somewhere between 9 and 11% of children that are in church today will still be in church when they're 25. 9 to 11%. If we were in nature, they would call us an endangered species with those percentages. And I got to think, I started looking at, is there communities of faith that are reproducing themselves better than we are? And I found one. I found one that is reproducing and retaining 95% of their kids. Do you know what faith community that is? Amish, you win. You were sneaking down the hall at 9 o'clock. It's the Amish. And that's a pretty strict religion, isn't it? Like you want to walk around with a coffee filter on your head all your life? I mean, that's not something you would think would be appeal to kids. But they're retaining 95% of their youth. 95%. And I got to think, I had to research this and figure it out. Do you know in every Amish home there are three books? Three books. The first is the family Bible. Okay, and it's this kind of Bible. You see it on the screen. It's not this Bible here. You know, it's not my other little copies I carry around. These are the ones that look like they should be in the Smithsonian, man. These are big, big Bibles. You know why? Because the whole family history is in there. Everybody's birth, everybody's death, stories about their family. The second book is what's called Martyr's Mirror. Martyr's Mirror is the story of the heroes of the faith. They're, they're people who literally gave their life and were martyred because they lifted up Jesus in the Anabaptist movement. And they sit around. This is, this is the cloud. Do you know Microsoft owes the church royalties for that one? You know, where do you think Microsoft got the cloud where you store the memory? You ever heard of the great cloud of witnesses? See, the world has taken our best lines because we don't even know we have them. But they sit around and they listen to the heroes of the faith, the memory. And the last book is the Ausbund right? You know what that is? The hymn book. It's all in Pennsylvania Dutch. So the first two books are the words of God and the words, the stories of the faith, and then we have the soundtrack, right? And twice a day, at minimum, in Amish homes, they sit around table with only these three books, and they immerse themselves in the words of God, and they immerse themselves in the stories of the faith, and they sing the soundtrack, and they learn it in four parts, and they pass it on. And, and Amish youth um, are given the option if they want to leave the faith. Anybody know this? Anybody seen the reality show Breaking Amish? It's wild, right? I did. I, I downloaded it on Netflix this summer because I just wanted to see. I was like, woo. Like they go through, they go through what they call, I, I always mess up this word. It's called, um, somebody's saying out there, rumspringa. 
Do you know what rumspringa literally means? Running around. So when youth get to be like teenagers and older and they say, I don't know if I want to do this Amish thing anymore. Parents say, great, go out and sow your wild oats. Go out, see what it's like out in the world. See if you want to live there. And let me tell you, watch them break an Amish. They don't just sow wild oats, man. They build a prairie. It is like, whoa. <laughs> but do you know while those youth are out there practicing rumspringer, which literally means running around, when the family gathers at table, they still set a place setting for that job. Do you know most Amish communities put food on it? And they are literally prophesying their children back into the community of faith. And as wild as those kids get on breaking Amish, they know that back home there's a plate of food for them and a setting for them with their name on it to go back to. We need to bring back the table. And I thought about um, also our Jewish brothers and sisters. I live on Rabbi Row, and I love our, our uh, Judaism. And Judaism is something they do that is amazing um, that I think helps create an identity. And think about this. How many people are in the world? Roughly, anybody know, 7 billion? In America, there's roughly 350 million. Canada, north of us, that has more land mass in America, did you know that? Has only one-tenth of the people. Like, it makes you want to move. <laughs> like, 35 million people in all this land, 350 in our land, 35 million in Mexico. You know how many Jewish people there are in the world? 14 million. Now, there should have been more. The 20th century and its evil was pretty unkind, if you've heard about the Holocaust. But 14 million Jewish people in the world, 7 million in Israel, 7 million around the world, United States and other places. Do you, how, what is 14 million out of 7 billion? Do you realize it doesn't even register a percent? There's 0% Jewish people in the world. 0.0002 to be exact. Do you know what percentage of Nobel Prizes, economics, science, biology, physics, mathematics are won by Jewish people? 40%. Don't even register 1%, but responsible for that kind of creativity in the world. Move it into the Oscars, the Grammys, the theater. Do you know what percentage of awards they win in the arts? 50%. What is it in this community that doesn't even register a percent in the world that creates that kind of imagination and human creativity? I got to thinking about and talked to my rabbi friend, and I realized, what's the highest holy moment in the Jewish faith? Where does it happen? In the synagogue? In the temple? In the home? At the table, at the Seder meal, right? Where, where who's presiding over the Seder meal? The holiest moment in all of Judaism is in the home, at the table, who presides over it? The priest, the rabbi, the lead pastor, the children's minister? No the elder of the family. And all the children sit at that table. They're not put at a separate table in another room. That convicted me really bad. Because <laughs> in the free table, you had to cut your teeth on the children's table to work up to the adults. And that was a free-for-all with all the cousins and my kids, right? They would lobby to get to the adult table. They're smart enough to put everybody at the table. Because what does the elder do? He reads the story. He reads the story. And, to see, and things happen at that table. And I was talking to my friends, and I realized he doesn't just read the story. You're to listen to the story. The children are listening. So it becomes their story. You read yourself into the story. In fact, when you hear Moses goes to Pharaoh to says, let my people go, that's not Moses. It's you. You're to go to Pharaoh. 
and say, let my people go. And when the children ask, who are we? We say, we were Pharaoh's. See, they're reading themselves into the story. And the other thing that happens at this table is that, at the Seder table, is that they encourage young people to challenge the story. See, we brainwash. They don't. They said, you're obligated to doubt this story. You're obligated to ask questions and challenge it. And because what they believe is the story is strong enough that can take anything, so bring it on. And their tables are full of dialogue and discussion and debate. And there's a lot of hot air at those tables. It's like a Jewish souffle. <laughs> and the other thing that happens at that table is the food tells the story. I've, I've gone through that if you've been around here the unleavened bread, the bitters, all that for the story. Because where do you find an identity? You find it in a story. You find it in a narrative. We're trying to find identities with a bunch of verses in the Bible. Do this, don't do that, do these. We're trying to find identity with a worldview. I was talking to a, a Christian president, president of a Christian college the other day, and it's the fourth one. He and I got into it, and I said, I'm sick of Christian colleges having missions that says, we're trying to teach all the youth a Christian worldview. Jesus did not die on the cross to give us a worldview. He died on the cross to give us a story. And the old church used to sing that. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Like it was a story. And when Jesus sat at table, he wasn't quizzing them on theologies. Do you believe on this issue or you don't believe on that one? No, he's telling them a story of a father in heaven who loves them as much as a shepherd that goes after lost sheep, as much as a father that runs out after lost children. He was telling them their value and they were finding identity in the story. Now we do what in the church? We wait till our kids get college age and we say, now go and find yourself. And we send them out to a culture that is very ready to give them an identity. 3,000 commercials a day on the tablets. I say, we'll, we'll shape a story for you. We'll give you a narrative. We need to bring back the table. Let me tell you just, just some images uh, that, that Lawrence Sweet had in his book. Excuse me. Sorry, online community. You just saw my bald spot in my head. Let me tell you some impact. Oh, shut up. You'll get there too. You're gonna, I'm gonna, I hate to tell you, you're going to lose your hair, you're going to gain weight, and your kids are going to come home and want you to do their laundry. So just <laughs> hear you. Listen to this. A sociologist put this together. The number one factor for parents raising kids who are drug-free, healthy, intelligent, and kind human beings, frequent family dinners. The number one shaper of vocabulary in younger children, even more than other family events, including play, frequent family dinners. The number one predictor of academic success for elementary age children going on to high school or college, frequent family dinners. One of the best safeguards against childhood obesity, eating meals together. The best prescription to prevent eating disorders among adolescent girls, frequent family dinners that exude a positive atmosphere. The variable most associated with lower incidence of depressive and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18-year-olds, frequent family dinners. Jesus knew what he was doing, spending time at the table, and it's time for the people of God to bring back the table. And so when the psalmist says, you have set before me a table, you know, David wasn't and this, this psalm is one that wrote, David wrote, and he was a warrior king. David wasn't talking about out there somewhere. He was talking about what God was doing in his life right now. 
when in Psalm 61, his son Absalom had died, who created a revolution against him, a coup, and broke his heart. When David said, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer from the end of the earth. I call out to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He wasn't talking about out there somewhere. He was saying, help me right now. I am in grief. I am in pain. I need your presence. I need something bigger than me. God, lift me up. And that's what he's doing in Psalm 23. He's not talking about death someday. He's saying, God is my shepherd now. God is comforting me now. God is taking me to still waters now. And even when I walk, he wasn't dead yet. Through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't be afraid. Do you know who who the psalm is talking about? When it says those who are walking through the valley of shadow of death, it ain't my father-in-law, it's not my mother, it's not my sister. They're already at the table. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. He's talking about those of us who still grieve. We're walking through the valley and we know about death and we know about loss, but we're not afraid. Because he's with us and there's a table that's prepared for us and his table's amazing. They say it's a celebration table. Because there's anointing oil on the table. You only did that if there's a big celebration. And there's, there's cups overflowing with wine on the table. Wine was big time sacred property back then. There's a celebratory table that's waiting for us. That's the story. That's the narrative that God is sharing with us. And I tell you something. That's why I'm glad we end this service at our table. Because there were three, two scholarly thoughts that were out there. One is that when David was saying this, maybe he said, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. See, the Bible nowhere takes enemies lightly. And one said, maybe, I, I played college sports, Division I college sports, and we always had pregame meals, right? So maybe this is a pregame meal for David. He's going to go out and face his enemies. And most scholars say, that eh, doesn't seem right. But what they do say, well, maybe it's a post-battle meal. Because when the king would come back triumphing, He would ride back on his horse and behind him with the victorious army coming back to Jerusalem. Behind them would then come the spoils of war. And then behind them would come the POWs, the prisoners in chains. And they're saying, maybe it's a post-game meal that David is celebrating victory and all his enemies are with chains. But I don't like that one either. Because the last night of Jesus' earthly life, where did he spend it? Table. With his friends. His victorious friends, his high character friends. Uh, We know what Peter's going to do after the table, right? We know what Judas does at the table. But Jesus sits at the table with him and breaks bread. I'm going to tell you something. That's what drives me crazy. And I shouldn't deal with this. But we had a little news story, and we always have them. Some prominent official was, was denied being allowed to go to the table because of where they stood on an issue. Whenever I hear that, I want to scream. And I want to tell religious leaders, it's not your table. It doesn't belong to me. I don't get to decide who comes to it. And maybe when he makes a table for me in the presence of my enemies, maybe he's building a community where enemies become friends. Maybe he's doing that. Maybe I I love at Garfield, I love sitting up front when you guys come up to the table because I see every tongue, tribe, and nation come to this table. I see conservatives and liberals come to this table. I see Republicans, Democrats. I see elderly and young and children and people all over which way and loose come to this table. And I sit up there. Seriously, I know your stories. Everybody else doesn't, but I do. I could write a book on you. And I sit up here and I sit there and say, where on else on earth do these folks get together except... At this table. 
And Jesus Christ is calling us to bring that table back for the world. We are supposed to model this. And if we need to give our life for it, it's a good death. Jesus showed us that. To come back. And let me close with this. Gosh, I got so much to say. I know, I'm sorry. The tech team's going, oh God, we've got 32 slides and he's finishing. Let me say to you, I did a little Bible study. And so Dave, I'm going to look at Genesis 2 and we're going to look at Revelation 22. You know, those of us who've experienced loss and some of you are here, you, if you had the privilege to sit with your loved one toward the end, and even if you didn't, you, you are listening, you're wondering what their last words were, right? You lean in, listening for last words. And if you've had a child, you're leaning in, listening for first words. Anybody had that experience? Every time my children were born, they started to function verbally. I would just sit there in a the room, I'm no good, and I'd say, please let it be dada, please let it be dada, please let, yeah. So like first words and last words. And I got to thinking, I looked and, and I saw, with Dr. Sweet's help, the first words of God in the Bible and the last words of God in the Bible. Now bear with me on this, and you can debate me later. Almost every Hebrew scholar believes, you know, before Genesis and Exodus, all that was written down, it was a narrative, it was a story before they wrote it down. And every Hebrew scholar believes that Genesis 2 is older than Genesis 1, where God created Adam and Eve and reached into the dirt, that that story had been around longer in the oral tradition than the Genesis 1 story of God said, let there be light. And so if that's true, and all the Hebrew scholars say it is, do you realize the first thing God said, we have it in Genesis, don't put it up there yet. Oh, you're stealing my thunder. Not yet. Not yet. Too soon. Too soon. Oh, they ruined it. The Lord God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God said, I was so sure what the Lord God would have said, and I don't know, they, they beat me to it. I was sure that God was going to say, don't eat of that tree of knowledge. Because see, when I was growing up in the faith, everything was about don't. Right? Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. That's not what God said. First words, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. That's the first word. Eat freely. Last words in Revelation 22, right? The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Last commandment of God in the Bible. What does that mean? The first word of God is eat freely. The last word of God is drink freely. And in between it, everything is the table. The bread of heaven, the cup of salvation offered for you. God desires to break bread with us in eternity. And Jesus modeled that on heaven. And that's why that story, Revelation, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who opens, I will come into them. And we always thought to stop there. But it says, I will come into them. Revelation 3.20, guys, I will come into them and eat with them. See it? I will come in, hit it, guys. Here's my voice, opens the door. I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me. Jesus is inviting us to the table. Let's bring back the table, amen? Let's work on hard this month together. We want to invite you now if our people that are helping with our tables would come. Our house of prayer is set up. So many wonderful prayer stations. Out in the lobbies now are opportunities to sit at table.